coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. I am right. trying to say in so many different ways, I am I'm literally starving in front of your eyes and you still can't figure out how to to parent me or to love me. And so in my heart, it was, I l- I'll never forget the thought is I want to die so that you suffer the way I'm suffering because I'm tired of carrying the load. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loblassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have Rachel Quast. Rachel is a master's level counselor, author, national speaker, and counseling group leader, surviving anorexia, bulimia, binge eating, and spiritual and family trauma paved the path for her career in counseling, where she specializes in eating disorders, emotional eating, relationship struggles, issues with faith and spirituality, and depression and anxiety. Because of her life experience, she has a heart to help others through their healing journey. Oh man, this episode was so fun. So, so fun. I love talking about eating disorders. Gosh, that sounds super weird, but I, I I really do because it's it's such an important topic for recovery. And I think so many people can relate to it in and out of recovery, having eating struggles. Rachel has used her experience to come up with a nine-step recovery plan process. And it's really fascinating to hear about. Also fascinating to hear about how her childhood and the intergenerational trauma from her grandparents affected her and her life. So much great information and she's just a wealth of knowledge. It was so great to have her on here. And I know you guys will love listening. So episode 112, let's do this. You're listening to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We're a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Rachel, welcome to The Courage to Change. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, absolutely. It's just my absolute pleasure to join what you guys are doing and join the movement of making recovery more um, available to people and knowing that we have so many stories to share. Yes. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And, and your story is one that I very much am passionate about because so many people, I struggle with eating disordered, disordered eating, whatever, whatever, however you want to name it. And I know so many people who get in, get into substance use disorder recovery and they have been they have suppressed this other demon mm-hmm. thing below and lo and behold it it arrives so i'm really excited to hear your story and how you have gotten into recovery so can you give us a little bit of background on your childhood where you came from where you grew up what your home life was like 
Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I grew up in uh, Wisconsin um, in a smaller, not super small town, but semi-small town. But in general, I think what's really most important is just the, the family upbringing with that. So my family, you know, from the outside, we looked like a perfect model family, um, which is always the most interesting. People assume that, you know, what looks like on the outside is what's going on the inside. And through <laughs> recovery and now, you know, doing counseling with people, I'm realizing, nope, it, that is exactly not the case. But yeah, personally for me, um, there were, it wasn't a, any outright physical abuse or sexual abuse. And I just want to put that out there because I feel like there's some old stereotypes out there with eating disorders that that has to be some major abuse or like that. But trauma happens in so many different ways. And so for me, it was sort of like that that droplet of water day after day of wearing you down. Yeah, so the family environment was very rigid. It was extremely critical. There were, it was very, very strict. There were just, there were one ways to do things, even like sweeping a floor. There was always a right way. And as a kid, I could never figure that, you know, what the right way was. So there were a lot of those different things. But on top of it, you know, both parents were extreme workaholics. So it always had this this feel to me of I just really wasn't wanted and I was pretty much invisible. Though I know that's not the case now as an adult, but as a kid, I I definitely felt like I had to, to figure my life out all by myself. Like I was not really being parented. How many siblings do you have? I have one older sister by four years. Okay. So there were two of you. And what did your parents do for a living? My mom stayed at home and my dad was a businessman of whatever he could get his hands into. But for the longest period of time, he owned five different organic fertilizer plants. And so for a good chunk of my life from uh, the most what I say most important years from eight um, on, he was gone which I think played a big part of it. He was gone uh, five the all through the week and he would come home on weekends and then leave again. And that was a constant. So it was this constant coming and going. So I felt like I was always losing my dad. So that really got tough also. Yeah. It sounds like he's probably not the kind of guy who would think, uh, you know, joking with him about being in the shit business was funny. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I, I would have had endless, <laughs> endless fun with that. Your your mother, you you uh, said she was a workaholic. What did that look like um, since she stayed home with you guys? Sure, that's a great question. Like she uh, made the house uh, that was sort of her obsession. So it was constant cleaning, constant cooking, constant doing gardening outside. There was always something, and that is just the way they've been. And honestly, that's still the way that they are. Is is you know, as long as the sun's out and it's not too cold, they'll find something to be working on. So yeah, it, would, it was that feeling as a kid of work was more important. And I was like, when there was some spare time, hey, there you are. Hi. Right, right. Like, oh, okay. Yeah, no downtime. Mm -mm. Interesting. It, yeah, it, I think a lot of, you know, there were a couple of things. Their parents were really loosey-goosey opposite of yours, correct? Their, your grandparents were not strict. 
Oh, no. Yeah. No, my my dad's parents were pretty much, um, I mean, they were extremely abusive. They were also both alcoholics, but they were pretty much let him run and do whatever he wanted. And so he turned the opposite because he thought love was being on, you know, lockdown because I care enough to force you what to do. And hopefully you won't get hurt, but it ended up creating other issues. And same with my mom's parents as well. My dad, my, yeah, they were very abusive, but not a lot of, you know, even my dad said I, they didn't even teach me how to brush my teeth. So it was just, he had the same issue of being, having to raise himself. So interesting. Yeah. It's interesting how we respond to trauma and then how we pass that down to our children. And it's why intergenerational trauma is such a big thing, right? Where, where our, our parents experience some abuse, they respond to it and then they respond within their parenting. And now you know, now here we are, right? So you have yep. generations of people responding to, you know, something that was going on a couple of generations ago. Yeah. You, you know, you talked about it. You've said that you felt like you were in an emotional prison and that you grew up in this extremely strict church. I had two questions. Um, could you tell me a little bit about the church? And then also about, you talked a little bit about emotional incest. And I wanted to hear about that. Sure, sure. So, um, yeah, the church that I grew up in, um, it, it, you know, I, as I went uh, on to do um, more work and counseling on that years later, I found it quite ironic ish <laughs> that my my home life was like my church life and so they both kind of fed off each other. So the the church was also very strict. I know when I was young, they you know, oh, women can wear makeup. Oh, no, women can't wear makeup. Oh, yeah, no, women can wear, you know, it was this small things and where our skirts had to be. And though they're not like that anymore, from what I understand, but nonetheless, that was my experience. It was very fear-based, which did not help because there was a lot of fear at home uh, as far as disappointing or if, you know, one of the parents are upset, they're there was hell to pay one way or or the other, um, whether it be punishment or just you know leaving the scene. They would just leave and abandon, and that that was the same environment with church too. It was just very fear based, which really just breaks my heart, you know, to teach that God is um, a punishing God and a fear based God. That's not even I don't believe that at all anymore. But nonetheless, it had a huge impact. I think one of the the big things that really sticks out for me is it was taught a lot that this is the true church. And so then, therefore, if you leave, you're then out of the kingdom. And that is terrifying for a little one to grow up in, because when you have that mindset, you're taught that mindset. And on top of it, here's all these different things you have to do right. And if not, then you could be kicked out of the church, which then leads to then kicked out of the kingdom. That is a heavy weight that a little brain cannot comprehend. And, you know, like I was saying, when I went back to counseling myself for that, I realized how much trauma and fear and how much that was linked to my own anxiety because it was this constant, I'm not okay, I'm not doing enough. And so that was just a, that was a really, really big one. Just, (laughs) yeah, we, I mean, we even had a Mary within the church. It was sort of one of those like we have the all the information and others are missing out. And if they can just get the great truth we have, then they'll be fine. And if anything, I felt it's the opposite now. So. It, was this a sect of Christianity? 
Um, yes, it was called non. It was a non-denominational church, but then when I look back, it really was very similar to like Messianic Jews because we kept all the holy days and we couldn't do Christmas or Easter and those different types of holidays. So, but yet, you know, we believed in Jesus, so it it was very different that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Rachel, I can't tell you how many people I talked to. I mean, just on this podcast, even who have the same experience that you have where their little, the way you described it, their little brains cannot absorb, cannot make sense of the information they get around, you know, going to hell, burning in hell, being kicked out of the kingdom, you know, being a family leaving, you know, being, being excommunicated, all the, all the different things and how many people I have personally spoken to who have your experience of just having that change their relationship with the whole world and, and having it be something they struggled with for years. And I, I find it so, I find it so sad because I think that we've taken something that can be really beautiful and we've added these things because of, I mean, again, I'm, I could, I'll probably get canceled for saying this, but we've, we've added these things because of, you know, the compliance, like these things that try to keep you from doing, you know, from, from sin, right? That's the goal. The goal is please don't do these things because that will take you outside of what we believe, right? That's ultimately the idea. And instead of positive reinforcement, it's this terror that's created in small children. And it's, Mm. Uh yeah, Yeah. it's it's a lot. It's a lot. It was, it was a lot. And I, I, you know, and the, and the fascinating thing is you don't realize it. Like it's, right. you know, it's like you're sitting in this pool and going, what's wrong with me that I, I need to keep up. I'm the one lacking here instead of, Hey, some of this teaching actually could not be correct. And again, we can't question that as kids, but when we get older and I honestly, thanks be to God, I, I got out. Yeah, because a lot of people don't, um, from what I understand, as far as like those type of fear based um, people stick in it and try to just fight their way through. Yeah, so it did. It did do, you know, it's this like what keeps coming to my mind is this feeling of not being comfortable in my own skin, because how can I if I'm never meeting the mark and how can I if I'm in this, you know, big, scary world and (laughs) <laughs> and I'm not figuring out the plan. So I just, it just fed that do hard, do more, be enough. And, and that is what a huge driver of anxiety, just huge. So, yeah. If you're never enough and you're always trying to be enough, you're always missing the market. If every day you're a failure, even when you're trying, you know, you don't get credit for, you don't get credit for trying those types of things. Yeah. It's huge, huge amounts of anxiety and, and feelings of, you know, lacking self-worth. So that makes total sense. You said there was, uh, there was anger, emotional abuse in the home and then emotional incest. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. The anger part is really, you know, now I understand it as my, you know, because of the abuse my dad grew up in, he had zero tolerance for feelings. And that was because any feeling reminded him of, you know, his mom and dad beating one another. And I understand it now and have compassion on it. However, growing up in it, it was this feeling of like, I mean, I honestly couldn't even have my feelings. I couldn't, I couldn't be angry. I couldn't be sad. 
I couldn't even laugh too loud because the escalation kind of, you know, brought up feelings for him at certain times, not always, but um, there were certain times I remember him, him asking, uh, you know, like yelling to like, cause we were too loud and he, something was going on for him. So there was this, yeah, this thing inside of him that he didn't know what to deal with. And so when anything got stimulated, it was us. That was the problem. It was the yelling. It was the anger. It was the leaving. It was, you're doing this. You stop this, knock that off or just him escaping the scene. So there was this, I always say like this unpredictable anger and the unpredictability of it is one of the things that made it so hard and was just a beautiful place for the eating disorder to sit in because guess how predictable that is. Like I can control it and I, I say eat or don't eat and when, and I can some kind of ignore the chaos of the the gymnastic circus on the, on the side. So, yeah, so there was definitely that piece. And as far as like the emotional incest, that is like an adult using a child for their emotional needs. So that is one thing that did happen is I was sort of his like counselor. I was his cheerleader. Um, When someone else, mom or my sister were upset, he always came to me you know, to console because guess what? I'm the empathic sensitive one and guess who's going to make him feel better? I am. (laughs) I mean, it was my nature, you know, that's kind of, it's still how I am, but it got, it got unknowingly by him, but it got used as a kid to be that person to make sure he felt okay. And he felt good about himself. And if there was trouble, you know, with mom, well, then I would sit and listen to that. So that's sort of the concept of incest as well um, as like, you know, when he wanted a hug, he would hug me even if I didn't want it. I just kind of accepted it and just kind of like felt like the dead fish in there, you know, like, eh, like, I, I mean, I energetically could just tell like he's hugging me because he needs it, not because he loves me right now. And so those things, again, especially for a sensitive kid, like we feel that we start absorbing those things. And then our worth becomes what we do for other people and we lose our own identity. Right. So mm -hmm. you talk about the control factor, what the eating disorder, the control of the eating did for you. When did that start? It sounded like it started pretty young. Oh my gosh. Very young. Yeah. The the patterns of it started when I was eight. So I was already writing diet books. Um, I would kind of, I kind of started isolating a little bit already because I, so I, I spend my alone time, I would write like exercise plans and eating plans, but it wasn't anything, you know, that I forced myself to live by, by this point. But then I also did, this just fascinates me, like just looking on it as if it wasn't me, right? Like I would put up charts on the wall, like I wouldn't disobey my parents, I wouldn't lie, I would do my homework, and every day I would go make a, a check mark on the list. And if I didn't get more than three check marks, I would allow myself to watch TV, which an eight year old doesn't do. Like they yeah. just kind of live, right? Or they should yeah. be living and playing. But I was doing a lot of this self monitoring. So, like, if we look back on what I already talked about, right? It's this, it's this feeling of like, man, I just gotta, I gotta get my shit together. (laughs) I gotta keep this straight. And then like, maybe I'll get a gold star, you know, maybe then I won't feel so afraid or maybe I'll get this affirmation from my parents I'm begging for all the time. And so I was going to try to make it happen myself since the environment, you know, home or church just wasn't giving it to me. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I admire, I admire, you know, taking, talk about smart goals, you know, just really taking it down and, and <laughs> putting it, putting it on the wall. She's eight years old. It took me a long time to learn how to do that. So, and did your parents know that you were, you know, upstairs making charts and checking the list of what you'd done and giving yourself gold stars or punishments? They didn't about the the dye book because I kind of kept that hidden. Um, but the chart on the wall, I mean, it was on my bedroom wall, right. so like I, they obviously saw it. Yeah, and I, I don't I don't remember them saying anything. Which yeah. like, I mean, as an adult, that breaks my heart. Like if I saw my little girl do that, I'd be like, "Honey, what is going on?" And and there was almost nothing, like no response to it. And and so for me, that was like well, obviously I'm not doing enough. Right. So try harder. And, you know, and I remember even like counting the number of days I would go without candy again as an eight year old. And I made it 89 days. And that's the day I got a little smidgen of like, good for you. Like my mom was washing dishes and I tapped her (laughs) to get her attention. And I said, mom, I went 89 days without any candy. And she turned and she's like, good for you. And then turn back and wash dishes. And I remember that heart sink of like, that's it. Like, and so there was this, you got to do more. So that was a lot of foundation where it started. And had it been caught at that point, I'm positive it would not have turned into an eating disorder, but it was ignored. And so it just kept going. Yeah. Maybe they thought you were just really into clean living. I mean, (laughs) I'll tell you, I have two little kids, two twin uh, boys. And if they put up a behavior chart for themselves, I'd take them to the emergency room and call, (laughs) I'd call a priest for an exorcist. I mean, that would be beyond anything, but I, I can't even picture a, you know, a young kid at eight doing something like that. So it is really, interesting and telling about, you know, what you were thinking about, what your goals were, what your perception was, what you were looking for and where you were headed. That was, that's right. So, you know, walk us through from this point through the eating disorder to your first treatment. Sure. So uh, then the next age I remember being more prominent was 11. Um, So I was in sixth grade and that's when the disorder really took hold. I started making even yet more rules, but this time I lived by them. So there was no sugar, no fat. I mean, I was eating literally plain, disgusting, plain yogurt, no sweetener with whole bran in it. And that was my lunch. So it was very bland kind of a diet, but I was thriving off of these rules. You know, it was this, you know, and I hear a lot, you know, the same clients just even yesterday, someone saying it's that same, like, I want to feel good enough. And this, this thing, these rules that I set up when I hit them, it's like the Pavlog dog bell, like, good job. Like I did it. And so I set up these expectations and instead of, I stopped looking for it from the outside. Like it was, you know, I made a rule literally at eight, a vow to myself of like, I'm done with these people. Like, and I will now do it myself. And so then it was, okay, here's my rules. Here's, you know, and then I will tell myself, good job. <laughs> and right. so then it kept going, you know, cause it was giving me this feeling of being alive again and getting attention and from my, you know, from myself, but even 
like perceived attention from others of things, you know, I could do that 11 year olds couldn't do. Like what 11 year old cannot eat sugar? Wow, that's amazing. And I would get it from strangers and people at the, you know, all over. So I I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty significant. It's pretty significant that that an 11 year old would be thinking about those things. Were you involved in any sports or any any activities where that might have been a part of the topic of conversation? Like, oh, what are you eating? A little bit. You know, there was the, I can't remember the name of it now, but the presidential fitness tests. Right. <laughs> I'm, I in, do, I'm yep. in that era. Yeah. Yes. So I do remember that. I really... Yeah. And so I hooked on to that um, very much so. But it wasn't that they talked about food a lot. Like my home environment, actually, my mom was a sugar-free, you know, only honey. So I kind of picked it up from her, like, oh, this is what's valued. And so I grabbed on to the value, hoping to get that. But, you know, it just it just isn't enough. So it kept going and going. And so I got to the point, you know, instead of like eating bland food, I just was restricting calories down to even a tiny amount. And just from what I know, I don't want to give any, any numbers because I know that can trigger people of like, oh, I want to do what she did. So I'll just say, and it was extremely low number. And I was working out three hours a day with a very limited amount of calories. It like escalated to this point, obviously, because what I was trying to get, it wasn't fixing because, well, let's just be honest, an eating disorder can't fix the broken soul. It can't. And so we feel (laughs) like, yeah, I know. I mean, dang, if anything, I gave it my all and tried, right? Yeah, you really (laughs) did. I give you, I'd give you a gold star. I'm like, geez, I'm, I'm thinking over here, right? Cause I'm the, I'm the, uh, the other end of this, but compulsive overeater. And, you know, and so I'm laughing and, and I'm also, you know, I've been diagnosed. I I don't know if this is real, but I was diagnosed with as a teenager with, um, oppositional defiance disorder. So I have the exact opposite reaction to (laughs) rules and anything. When you're talking about like, I feel like rules give me, I am the complete, like just exactly, you know, mirror. Uh, And it's just, it's funny to me. Like, I, I understand what you're saying, but it's, it's the other half of the eating disorder, right? Just the other response. You can't control me. I won't be controlled. I don't need to have the rules, but it's the same thing, right? I, I yeah, absolutely. And I used to wish that I had the eating disorders that wanted the rules, that wanted the restriction that was into that. I would go to meetings and say, gosh, look at them. They're so disciplined. <laughs> what can I, they're so, you know, and they would say to me, Ashley, you know, you ha- it's, it's a prison. It's a disciplined prison. And I couldn't understand because I couldn't follow those things for myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Well, eventually I did get there. I did get to the hating rules and fly the opposite. So oh, you I'm did. Definitely- okay. So, so you, you oh, flew yeah. the other direction. It was part of my recovery. Yeah. Once I got into recovery, I was like, yeah, this stuff is ridiculous. But yeah, I do want to comment though, for anyone listening that it is, it is hell. It is like, I've had those comments. I've even, yeah. you know, had coworkers say like, oh, I wish I had that. I'm like, you don't like, <laughs> it is literally hell on earth. It literally yeah. is of this constant negative critical voice that never, ever is satisfied. Yeah. So Mm-hmm. Yeah, what we see, what we see as the ability to make a plan and stick to it as discipline, you know, is is a whole other world. That's that that's that's the small amounts that the rest of the world are seeing. But what's going on in your head? That's a whole other ball game. And I think the people like me are going, 
I just want the discipline piece, like, you know, just to be able to follow through and make the plan and that kind of thing. And it took me a while. Someone once said to me, um, going to OA and I would, I would, you know, say the same thing, like, gosh, I, you know, and just sometimes I'm like, why didn't I get the, you know, the sexy disease, like overeating really. And she said, maybe God knew that you, maybe God knew that you weren't strong enough for your recovery to be gaining weight. Mm, wow. Yeah. That's and powerful. I was like, wow. Yeah. That's I, cause I never thought of it as it related to recovery. When you get into recovery from either thing, when you get into recovery from under eating, you're gaining weight. Mm-hmm. And you, when you get into recovery from overeating, you're losing weight, which is not an upsetting thing. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. It's terrifying to, to, to go through that process. Yeah. Yeah. It was a really, I'd never thought of it that way ever, ever, ever. You went to your first treatment, you landed at age 14 at 54 pounds. Yeah. Yeah. I was 14 at that time. Just being thankful for, for God's grace that I did, did feel the physical ramifications because, yeah, because otherwise, because of my strong will, I don't know if I would have, if I would have bent. So, you know, I was like my legs were physically collapsing. My energy was at at null. Like my for years, people told me like, oh, you're going to die. And like, yeah, whatever. Like, I don't think so. And then my heart started beating really weird and it would beat fast and then it would squeeze. And then those were things that actually terrified me enough to to when my parents brought me into inpatient treatment, I didn't buck it. Otherwise, I could have seen me <laughs> go into treatment and be like, yeah, I'll show you. I'm still not going to. But so yeah, I'm just really that I feel like was just God's goodness to let me experience the the heart of the ramifications. How tall were you at the time or are you? Um I'm 5'1". You're 5'1". Okay. And so you, at 54 pounds were that was very clear to your parents that must have been very clear to your parents that there was a problem because it sounds like it was clear to other people saying you're going to die. Oh yes, yeah. They, I mean, in the in the time they did put me in outpatient, and it okay. was kind of okay. working. And then some, um, I say sarcastically, brilliant man. At I was at the gym. I was already a gym rat by eleven. So some guy said, "Oh, looks like you're putting on weight." And after that, I was like, I could feel the inside of this is now my game, and I will win. So I didn't see it as. You know, like a lot of people think people get into eating disorders because they just want to look thin. Uh, no, I mean, that is a rarity when I actually work with people. it is. A, I don't think I've ever found anyone saying that's the only reason when we get down to it. For me, it was, you just told me I lost control. You just told me that my identity is now um, now being lost. You just told me that I now look weak. You know, you told me that, you know, like I'm not special anymore. So it always goes down to those wounds of like, and this is how I love to work with people is like, where was the wound? Where was that core belief? And what pattern did you do and are you doing to try to meet it instead of actually meeting the need of its own or going through and doing the trauma work before that? So, but obviously at that time I had zero recovery and I didn't, I didn't know. I just knew that I wanted to feel not, I didn't want to feel what, how I felt. I didn't want shame anymore. I didn't want it. I wanted it off. And that's all I knew how to do because I wasn't taught anything else. Yeah. So I just went in 
high gear and it literally just, yeah, it was to the point where I, I was like, I want to die. You know what? I'm done. Like not because I didn't want to live. It was because I was, it was more directed toward my parents of, I don't know how to get through to you people. I am trying to say in so many different ways, I am, I'm literally starving in front of your eyes and you still can't figure out how to, to parent me or to love me. And so in my heart, it was, I'll never forget the thought is I want to die so that you suffer the way I'm suffering because I'm tired of carrying the load. Cause that's how I felt. I'm carrying the load of all this that you can't figure out. So that's where I was going into treatment is I want to die. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it sounds, I was just reflecting on, I was reflecting on 14, trying to remember, okay, what, you know, how tall was I? What, you know, what size trying to picture what you're talking about. And I realized that my, I have very big four-year-olds, but my four-year-old is 54 pounds. Oh, wow. <laughs> he's he's a large kid. Um, he's more like he's the size of a seven-year-old, but still, I, I mean, that's, you know, you were 14 years old and, you know, and then I also, I've worked with families where parents whose child is starving themselves and I, you know, they're terrified. They don't know what to do. They're trying to force them to eat. They don't know what they did wrong. And what I find is, and and you tell me, you know, what you think about this, what I find is whatever that wound was that you're talking about, whatever that thing that happened, that, that kind of turned the switch, the amount of love that you start to impress upon the person when you're scared that they're going to die, it doesn't absorb anymore because they're closed off. So, yep. unfortunately, what I've seen, and, and I felt this way with drugs and alcohol, um, but what I've seen is, at the point where the parents start to notice what's going on as a result of the behavior, right? Not the wound, but the behavior. Yep. There's already a wall up. And yep. so parents are trying to, th- you know, they're trying to love you. They're trying to, and if they, the things that they're giving you, had they given you before the behavior, you probably would have been able to absorb it. But unfortunately, after the fact, it's, it's, I mean, I don't want to say lost cause, but it definitely doesn't, it doesn't penetrate very well. And so parents are going, I don't know what to do. Cause you were saying, you know, they couldn't figure out, they couldn't figure out how to love me. They couldn't figure out how to, you know, show me that I'm important. And what I was thinking to myself was I've worked with these parents who are saying, I'm showing her that I love her. I'm showing her that she's important. I'm showing her And, you know, I don't say this, but I'm thinking, unfortunately, you're showing her too late. That's not where we are right now. We're, you know, fine to show her that. I'm not saying that there's any bad, you know, that that there's a negative effect of showing her, but it doesn't fill up the hole that was created before. It doesn't, it doesn't undo it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I say similar ish things too, of there's a certain stage where the person is receptive. And then once the addiction takes over and is now the most important voice, then your voice doesn't matter anymore. That so it's kind of saying the similar thing. Yes. Yeah. Much better way of saying it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Much better way of saying it. Right. Once the addiction is there and has, has filled the void, yeah, that wall is up. And unfortunately we can't, we can't hear all the things we wanted to hear from you in the first, you know, that I think that's the saddest part watching it from the other side, watching yeah. parents from the other side is all the things that they wanted to hear 
they're being told now and they can't hear it now. It's that. It's, but the hope is though, is in what I say is the open door is going back and letting the wound speak from the age of which it got hurt. There's the open door. So it, it's never a hopeless cause, but the voice of the little one has to be heard and it, it's authenticity of that age. So oftentimes what we do is, so say for me, right, the wound was at six, seven, eight. So now my six, seven, eight-year-old needs to do the talking, not my 40-year-old, you know, because we logicize it all. So for parents, like, go in and let them scream about how the hurt it hurt and let them tell you how, like, it really sucked. You didn't even see it. And they have to do that work. They have to, and they have to be allowed. Then the love can come in and be heard. Yes. Yeah, it was... It's interesting. I, having done that, you know, you're describing inner child work and, and having done that inner child work there, it's a whole process because you have to, you have to step back into that child. You have to step back into that childhood place that can be very difficult and painful and scary. And then you feel those feelings, right? You, you, you express them, however, you know, therapeutically makes sense. And I found that I had a period of time where I needed space from my family, my parents. I needed not to talk to them for, you know, not that long, but a short period of time before I could go back to the age mentality brain place that I was because the the act of really, really getting into that childhood place in order for me to feel that way, I, I couldn't just drop in and drop out in a session. Right. Uh, I was angry. I had to feel the <laughs> angry. I was hurt. I was, and I had to feel it for longer than I intended, I guess. Yeah. And once that, once that, um, you know, for me, it was like that, that 10, you know, five to 10 year old could, once I was able to express that I had to transition, there was a transition period back to the logical adult self. And that yeah. I didn't expect because it wasn't my experience with other types of therapy. I didn't. Sure. Sure. You know, so it was a very, it was that powerful, I guess. Yes. Oh, it is. It is. It's a, it's a beautiful process. Oh, I, it's just, it's fun to do. I still work on myself, even though I'm a counselor, I still do my own work because I just love to, <laughs> and yeah. I have things to work on till I die. I am sure. So yeah, yeah, I, I, I totally would agree with that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, it's Christiana, your producer. And if you're like me and you love coffee or coffee alternatives, you can now shop with a cause by visiting lionrock.life and clicking on shop. 100% of the profits fund substance abuse treatment for those who can't afford it. You can't really go wrong. We're now carrying, in addition to our amazing coffee, if you haven't tried it, matcha maiden organic matcha powder. Love me some green tea. Golden Grind Turmeric Latte Blend and Prana Chai Original Blend. So we've got something for everyone. We love mixing these delicious coffee alternatives with something like milk or almond milk, oat milk, or even just hot water. The organic matcha powder is vegan-friendly, gluten-free, dairy-free, and simply delectable. The Turmeric Latte Blend, the winner of Australia's Best Beverage product in 2017, helps bring about relaxation and restoration while also nurturing your body. The prana chai, that has been my pregnancy craving, it's amazing, is blended in Melbourne from all natural ingredients and uses 100% Australian quality honey blended by hand with tea and whole spices. 
By shopping for coffee and coffee alternatives at lionrock.life, you are also helping provide substance abuse treatment for someone who can't afford it. Your favorite drink with a cause. So again, go to lionrock.life, click on shop, and you'll see our coffee and our brand new coffee alternatives. We hope that you enjoy it. Send us a picture. Maybe we will feature you on our Instagram as well. So just to run through some of this stuff, um, I want to, you know, I want to talk, touch on a couple points, but for timeline purposes, you went to treatment at 14 and um, you did okay for a year, but then relapsed into bulimia and then transferred your addiction to food control to exercise. I think we kind of talked about that a little bit. And then from 15 to 18, you were binging and purging. Mm -hmm. Age 18 to 20, you decided to stop purging and your exercise addiction was completely out of control. Mm -hmm. At 21, you transferred to a secular college. So 18 to... So er, the first college you went to was associated with the church you grew up in. Yes. (laughs) Did Did that affect your eating disorder... Uh, you know, your where you were in your eating disorder, did it increase it at all? Did you notice a difference being back in that kind of environment or, or had you never really left? It, you know, the way I say it is it was just peeling the onion layers because even though I did, you know, go through these different relapses into bulimia and binge eating and exercise addiction, I, I still was doing counseling. I still was working a program. I still wanted recovery more than anything. It was just these things that hadn't been labeled yet that I didn't understand. And just to say too, that the exercise addiction was there all along. It was right. sounded like at, 11 years old at the gym. Yeah. That was my beginning of, uh, oh, cause I got the most praise there, you know? Right. Uh, so, so that was not going to be licked for a while. Cause that was my back pocket. I can still live and beat myself up in the gym. <laughs> so, just pa- just to I just want to drop a pin right here which is what is the difference between the person doing the ironman the person who does extreme sports or the person who competes in some physical way where they are working out 8 hours a day and the person who has an exercise addiction what where's the line good question yeah it's little inner inner things to ask yourself. Um, you know, can I take breaks? If I have um, an injury, can I take time off and let it heal? Or am I just chomping at the bit or working out with the injury? Does it, is it tied into self-worth? Am I, if I go on vacation, can I take time off? You know, it's, it's listening to that. There's this little inner buzz, uh, intensity, uh, that is speaking when it's addiction related versus it's a goal. I love the goal. It's fun competition. And then I take time off. So people doing those competitions, I'm going to bet there's a good bleed of those doing it and, and are balanced and those that are addicted. So hopefully that helps, but yeah, I know for me that I I was working out through the flu. I would go throw up from the flu and go back and finish my sets. You know, I had severe back injury and guess who was back in the gym, you know, five days later. It didn't matter to me because my worth was dependent. And so that's sort of the look of an addiction is is I'm not enough without this or I am not complete without this. Or I hear people say, oh, I'm just too anxious without this. I'm like, well, 
then we need to look at what it's doing and feeding. The other components would be the amount of times per week. Can you take days off? The amount of time, like if you're upwards in, you know, uh, two, three hours, to, you know, I understand like Ironman, that's a little bit different, but in general, that's, that's, that's starting borderline addiction up in the two hours. So yeah. those are just some things that, that come to mind with that. Mm-hmm. My brain, because I'm, you know, I'm looking for all the exceptions, right? So I'm like, well, (laughs) I know an exception here and I know an exception here. And I think one thing you said, you said that, you know, worked out through the flu, worked out, you know, through a back injury. I guess that sparks for me because I have a, I've had a back injury. I'm like, there's just no, I mean, I couldn't walk. Like, how do you work out through a back, you know, it's, it's unimaginable to me. I, I think, you know, I know a lot of people who use, exercise as a way to help their mental health. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Though I can see people being anxious, you know, it help. I know it helps my anxiety and, and depression significantly, mm-hmm. but I also, there's that, you know, it, it's like with anything where there's something different. It just, it, there's something different. I was telling, I was telling, I was talking to a girlfriend of mine and I was saying how, you know, I can see in a group of people who are all doing the same type of drinking and partying and and, and three people could be doing cocaine and I can see the one that, mm-hmm. where it's different. I can, I, yes. there's something about it, you know, <laughs> yes. there's something there, I get, they're all doing the same behavior. They're all doing illicit drugs. They're all, you know, whatever. Uh-huh. I don't know. There's just, there's, I, and I couldn't, I, and I'm sure you're like this and you could probably walk into a gym and see this. Oh my gosh. I, yeah. I, I could just, I, there's something, there's some difference that I can see about how they're doing all of it yeah. that, that yeah. just makes me know that, that, that the, the voice, the itty bitty shitty committee in the head yes. is just, yes. you know, is just on blast. Yeah. Yeah. There's this, yeah. There's this like anxious intensity with it versus like, just doing it, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, we're doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That is true. I can spot. <laughs> I can spot. Oh, I bet. I bet. I'd love to go to the gym with you and just be like, tell me everything. <laughs> tell me, tell me everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sherlock Holmes of the gym. Right. Hi, here's a card. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have literally wanted to do that to people at times. And I like, I've, I've stopped myself, but, um, <laughs> Like oh god, so you um you you go to this the college of the same church. I'm assuming since it was a relatively small community that this was a relatively small university that you attended. What made you transfer out? At the time, there there was a church split, and I didn't know what to do with that. So I had some fear around that, and what and and so then that made me leave to go. I felt led to leave and go somewhere else, and I was grateful for that. But go ahead, yeah. You were in the church this whole time, though. Is that I was in the church till I was thirty nine. That's you, okay. So in my yeah. head, you we had left the church. Okay, you're <laughs> no. I'm like, the church. Okay, so you're still in the church this this whole time. Yeah, up and yeah, I left at 39. I'm yeah, so I have only been out for 8 years. So, yeah. Yeah, so it's the the way I say it and I don't mean to step on toes of anyone in in the church, but 39 years of that programming, it takes a lot to undo. And yeah, so I had years where I just couldn't read the Bible and I like certain sermons I'd be like, uh, uh, you know, I'd be thrown into panic attacks and 
it was tough. It was for a good two, three years. It was brutal, just brutal. After, um, after leaving. Yeah. Cause after leaving. After cause leaving. I wasn't doing certain things and the voice would come back of like, you know, like bad things are going to happen. And, you know, and like, God's not going to help you because you're not doing this. And I was just like, <laughs> and so it was, yeah. When I say my anxiety was linked, it was linked hard. Oh yeah. Oh, but then yeah. the freedom of like breaking out of that and eventually working through I'm, I mean, I, 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 I'm, I cannot say enough gratitude to where I am now and the relationship I have with God now and knowing that he's so loving and is not there ready to punish. Like, he's just like, how can I help? How can I pick you up? You know, this is about, you know, relationship. This isn't about my rule stick. And (laughs) I am so thankful. I'm so thankful when God shows me more and more of his love. It's just, it undoes me. So it's, it's pretty cool that you were able to revamp, if you will, Mm -hmm. that relationship, redo the relationship, because I think a lot of people, you know, there's, it's black and white, right? It's like, okay, I'm leaving, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, leaving it all behind. So it's pretty, it's pretty cool that you were able to take things that worked for you and make them into, make them into something that's really meaningful and powerful for you. So I'm, I'm glad I'm glad that that's happened. Yeah, me too. Because I I can't imagine living this life without him. I just can't. I I so I I feel like God kind of grabbed me early, and there were some very personal and intimate experiences I had, and I think that's what held me is because I knew I had that with God and I, not through the church. You know, so walking through the eating disorder and having to literally, and I'm not joking or exaggerating, having to pray every single meal of God, help me eat this. I don't want to eat this. Getting in an argument with my, you know, one of my parents and, and everything in me wanting to go, fuck you through not eating. And because yeah. I knew it would hurt them. Right. 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 And praying and just being like, mm, yeah, this is my recovery. Like, God, this is not in me. I know you can give me what I don't have right now. And that is where I built that intimacy with God thankfully, so that I still through all the hell of that clung to him on the way out of the church. Right. If that makes sense. Right. My version of that is, um, is I will not eat at you. Oh, wow. Uh, I will I will not eat at you. Like I want to eat at you, but I will not eat at you. That's like, I have chills with that. That's just beautiful phrase. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you married someone in the church, was there any point during from 14 when you went into treatment through these different, you know, binging, purging, ec, um, exercise addiction, were you continuing to work on your recovery or were you out of recovery? What was the, the was the status, so to speak, of, of your recovery up until then? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I definitely continued. Like once I left treatment, um, I did a lot of counseling. Like I had three to four hours a week of dietitian group, individual and family counseling for three years. So I was, yeah, that's, that's, that's serious. Good job. Yeah. (laughs) I, I wanted out of it so bad. Um, (laughs) yeah, I was like this. You're like, yeah, great. Can we end this now? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was done with it. So, so yeah. And so I did have that year of abstinence, but then the bulimia, you know, it, it returned into bulimia because it's, it's this figuring out how to eat again. Right. It's like my right. plan was don't. And so, right. so you this know, is the next phase of, yeah. okay, 
eat, yeah. but, you know, and that, that makes sense to me. Like, like you kind of have to iterate on, on this. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, and just so you know, since you're, you know, have experience with, you know, the drug alcohol piece, we in the eating disorder world are jealous of your abstinence plan because it's nothing. Right. <laughs> it's your plan is don't do it. And ours is you have to live here. Good luck. How do you yeah. do that? You know, three to six times a day and do it in a balanced way. It's, but it's, yeah. it's different. What I found was that it's different for people who have, who are, rest- who, who restrict anorexia bulimia typically. Uh, there's some similarities with bulimia, but anorexia very, so for me, I have to eat three times a day, but I don't have to eat food. I don't have to eat alcoholic foods three times a day. So like, right. I have to drink, I don't have to drink alcohol, but I do have to drink, right? I do have to drink water and, and other fluids. So I I do have to eat, but I don't need to eat alcoholic foods. Mm-hmm. Anorexia, I think, is a kind of a bit of a different thing because it's no, 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 you have to eat. Like it's any food at all, whatsoever, right? Where mm-hmm. whereas, you know, a binge food or a, a triggering food, we can eliminate those. And that was what I had to tell myself because a lot of the time I would say to myself, well, it's not fair because I have to interact with my addiction three times a day. It's not, it's in my head, I do a lot of it's not fair. It's not, that's not fair. You don't understand, blah, 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 blah. I don't want to deal with this. And what was helpful for me as it relates to kind of trigger foods, binge foods, that kind of thing was, well, I, I, no, I, I don't have to interact with my addiction three times a day. I just have to eliminate the things. So it comes back to that. Like I, I actually, and I think anorexia is that, re, that that's the real, you have to interact with your addiction three times a day. But same for bulimia though, because that's the same exact thing is any food can be triggering for someone experiencing bulimia. Got it. So, okay. Yeah. So it's that, you know, you're eating and like, oh, now I just don't want to stop because something subconscious is going on that they haven't yet identified. And it's, right. it's the, this way to to numb out or not deal with the shame or, or, you know, the trauma that they keep trying to keep at bay. So it's very similar uh, for bulimia. Absolutely. And I, and I still would say there's, there's a lot of struggle for uh, binge eating as well, or emotional eating, because, you know, it, even though you just don't have to not eat that food, it's still very accessible. Like no one's going to pull you over for having donuts, right? Totally. (laughs) Like, ma'am, you got six donuts in your car. We're taking oh God, you I in. wish they would. <laughs> totally, but you no, totally. It's a totally. Yeah. It's that piece of it is so different. But I, were, I, I gave myself a lot of outs because I gave myself a lot of excuses. Like, well, I, you know, it's not fair. This is so much harder. Like, I really put my, you know, and and it was that thing. Like, um, maybe you're not strong enough for your recovery to have to be to gain weight or whatever, you know, like it was one of those things where it's like, well, you still have to drink. You just don't have to drink alcohol. You still have to eat. You just don't have to eat these foods. And, but yeah, accessibility, it's a whole, I mean, yeah, you know, it's, it's part of, it's part of what you, you know, food is a, it's a whole other beast. It is. Um, it yeah. really, it really is. It's, it's terrifying. And gives you all the lovely, you know, dopamine and serotonin releases just as drugs. And and I don't think a lot of people realize that is, yeah. is, oh no, it's not that you just really like food. Like you actually are getting the chemicals that you may not be producing enough of. <laughs> totally, totally. 
how did you, so you ended up marrying someone in the church. Did that affect your eating disorder recovery or addiction? I'm trying to, nah, it was short-lived. Okay. Because it became, it became emotionally abusive that that literally two hours after the ceremony. So it affected my stress. I still was eating probably not as much, but not because I was restricting. It just, you my stomach was just hungry. so upset. Yeah. So that did, that did not, no. So you were good before the ceremony. So, so you guys, when you were dating, it was fine. And then two hours after the ceremony, he's a new person. Yeah. Like I saw different little bits of anger, but it was never at me and it wasn't a lot, but Two hours after, yeah, like that's when I started to get yelled at literally of like, just, you know, stop your putzing around. You're taking pictures too slow. And, you know, blah, and it was, I was like, uh, oh, oh, okay. Um, what just happened? <laughs> um, and then I was being yelled at for talking to a relative because I should be getting food. And there were threats at the reception table of I should just leave before I say something I regret. And I'm like, what the heck happened? <laughs> I was, then I I was, again, living in terror of like, if he can do this here in front of everybody, what's going to happen when we're home alone? So it was just a lot of terror from the get-go. And the, and the honeymoon was the same. Lots of yelling and fighting. And I, I, I literally called my dad and said, can you pull the papers? I can't do this. And well, you know, it was married within that church. And there my dad was like, oh, I can't do that. And and I called the, the minister and asked the same. And I, I don't even know if I want, I mean, it was just disgraceful what he said. It was completely disgraceful for, for me to be able to tell him of all of the pain and all that's going on and ask me one question and say, based on that, no, you can't. I have no words for that. Are you <laughs> able no to words. tell us what the question was? Did you have sex? And based on the fact that we had sex, it was not able to be nullified. I'm still dumbfounded at that. It breaks my heart. <laughs> it just breaks my heart. Yeah. Cause it was nine months of pure hell. <laughs> it just. Oh, you stayed. Yeah. Because I was terrified of divorce. I did everything in my power that I knew to do to stay in it because I kept saying to myself, I do not want that on my head. I do not want that to be my choice. I will fight because I know that's what I'm expected of. But yeah, it was. It was really just heartbreaking. How did you get out after nine months? God answered my prayer. I like I we I begged him and begged him to go to counseling, and I tried, and I went to the minister, and that was helpless. And yeah, I kept asking, going, "This is this is what I know to do. This isn't the only thing I know that can fix this." Anyway, in the meantime, I kept praying. I kept saying, "God, please make him change or make him leave, because I can't deal with this." And one day he up and left. It was because I told him he couldn't drive my car anymore because of the way he road raged with it. And that was enough to break him. And so he left. Yeah. Wow. Nine months to the day, which I cannot tell you how grateful I was because I, I literally dropped to the floor sobbing when he walked out the door. It was it was sobbing of honest relief of it wasn't on my head and it's over. I don't have to suffer through this. Yeah. And, and it kind of sounds like, and forgive me for my corny metaphor, but like nine months, you kind of birthed a new person after that. Yeah. 
I love it. I don't think that's corny. I love those things. And, and actually, I mean, if you want to go numbers corny, like the day he walked out was nine months exactly to the day we got married. And, and I love numbers. So I looked up numbers and in the Bible, nine, nine means uh, time and time of testing is over. And so Uh I felt like God said, you're released from this. So I, yeah. And so, I mean, there was another just gut-wrenching hell to walk through because, you know, here I thought that he was the answer, right? Because we had to marry in the church and like, right. that was the only plausible person. And by that time I was 38, right? So I was like, oh my God, it's either this guy or be single forever. And and uh, so, you know, that's what those kind of rules do to people, right? You pick people that aren't yours. So yeah, so then I went through that and I saw how the church dealt with it that I was in. And I kept seeing people turn against me. I saw people that used to be my friends not talk to me. I saw people say, yeah, yeah, we'll get together and not come through. Because you got left by your husband. Because, oh, because we were getting divorced. Yeah, but he left you. That's it. That's not relevant. Okay. Not relevant. No, no, not when, you know, whose story do you believe is kind of... Right, okay, okay, okay. Right? Got it. Like, yeah. So, um, yeah, so I saw all of those things. And, you know, at this point, I was starting to have a major faith crisis because I thought this guy was from God. And so I went to the the minister and, and I said, I really need to talk to you because I literally said, I'm having a faith crisis. Well, at this time, I had a, my severe back injury. And he said, when your back gets better, we'll talk. I was floored. Absolutely like, I just went to you in pain. And now I have to wait how many months because who knows how long it's going to take for my back to get better. I can barely walk. What do those two things do have to do with each other? Nothing. And that's when I okay. saw... Just making sure I wasn't missing something. You weren't missing anything. Thank (laughs) you. I was like, um... Thank you. That was my response. Dumbfounded. Yeah, like, is there a a link to God and back pain? Because if there is, I need to know. Right, right. Yeah, a lot of (laughs) us would. No, it was, in my estimation, it was a way to put me off and not deal with the issue. And so those things kept weighing on me. And I literally feel like the spirit said to me, the scripture of like, you will know them for the love they have for one another. And I literally went, when I heard that in my head, I was like, this isn't it. This isn't the place. And, and it started to free me from the, this is the true church because I would see different fruits from their behavior and I didn't see it. And so, yeah, that was the catalyst of me leaving was the divorce. (laughs) How did your parents take that? Which the divorce or leaving the church? <laughs> good, good question. Uh, let's go leaving church. Yeah, the divorce they supported because they knew what I was living yeah. through. So they were like, "We support you. Get out." Um, thankfully, good. leaving the church. Wow. Um, yeah, I had to set some really strong boundaries for two years because it, there were things getting thrown in that just kept triggering me and. They did come to, you know, they did eventually get the point of that's not my home. And I, you know, bless you if it's yours. I don't want to be in the place of judgment of anybody. And if it works for others, great. Like I can't, you know, different places work for different people. And I just know it was not my place that God had for me. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
so how and and how did all of this you actually wrote a book that has that relates to not the nine you created you know using that number nine yeah. um, <laughs> a book that where there are nine steps for eating disorder recovery what did your eating disorder recovery look like in this period of time after the divorce after leaving the church yeah my my recovery was a lot of leaning on other people I had some really good, solid friends that were in my corner through all of this. So it was, you know, setting up time with others, literally of like, let's split 30 minutes Um, and they would get time. But I also needed that time to just, you know, being that it it was, you know, with a friend, it, it was this ability to discharge all the gunk, right? I didn't have to package it and I didn't have to just, oh, it was so hard. I could scream how hard it was. I could just go on the floor and sob with them. I needed that because I'm a very emotional, I feel a lot of things in my body person. And so that process had to, it worked a grand for me. God was a huge piece. Going back to counseling, huge in in stabilizing me and I'm not crazy here. I'm doing the right thing. Yeah, those rules were not okay. Yeah, those rules are not what God is asking you to do. It was a lot of undoing. That was a big piece as well of stabilizing me. Lots of journaling, lots of boundaries. <laughs> wow. It just what was not okay behavior, people that were not okay for me, cutting connections with old church people, which I'll say even to this day, there there's one that still keeps somehow trying to contact me to this day. And um, I may need to set some boundaries there as well, because for me, I just don't want any connection because I know the thought process that goes on of I'm the one that strayed. I'm, I've heard, heard it. I've heard the rhetoric all the years I was there of people that go and what's said about them. And so for me, boundaries with that is super important. Doing a lot of trauma work is huge for me. Just getting to the bottom of what trauma is and how it landed in my body, doing some somatic energy release work has been another big uh, piece. And I would say also just using my voice, like my voice matters and I get to say it. I still, you know, which, you know, with my upbringing, my voice not mattering and not being heard or being fought against, it's still a struggle. I'll be honest, at my age, I still have to say things shaking in my boots <laughs> to people that I'm scared of. Yeah. But you do it anyway. You know, that's yeah, how you I mean, recover. It years just to say it because it, it's hard. You know, it's hard. People think it's easy, you know, um, because of the work I do. But shoot, just, you know, that doesn't mean I don't have my own uh, things to work through. Like I'm human. I love helping other people. It's my life. I love it. It's God bless me with it. But it doesn't mean that I still don't have my own, my own traumas that, that bite at me and that I need to, to do the same work they're doing. So absolutely. Mm-hmm. When you talk about boundaries, you mentioned boundaries, just, add, you know, curiosity. I think, boundaries get a bad rap because you know they they like they I think people sometimes use them you know I think incorrectly um but um or use the term incorrectly wondering how what some of the examples of boundaries for people who is I think I've heard a lot of people in your situation what kind of boundaries did you set that were very helpful one you described was the church people from the church but 
that were there other things with people that that related to religion that you needed to set a boundary and what what types of boundaries did you set that were super helpful? Oh, are you saying strictly around religion or in general? I guess I'm thinking like after leaving the church, I, you know, what what types of boundaries someone might set when they leave a group of a group that is really valuable to them? Like, what did it look like? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, so I mean, unfortunately for me, it was you know taking the you know people that were triggering. So, un- like, unfortunately, it was my parents. You know, even though they, you know, they're lovely people. You know, they just we've been through hard stuff, but they're they're just they're beautiful people. But I had to set like I barely talked to them for two years, only because I knew topics that would get dropped in. You know, it's right. hey, I'm telling you about a new bicycle I bought, and somehow a scripture is read to me, and I'm like, yeah, I just telling you about my bike. So okay, yeah. so I just knew with that happening over and over. Right now, I need to heal. So right now, it's going to be very brief, infrequent conversations with them. It looked like, oh gosh, um, certain sermons I knew of people like not to listen to. I went to people that spoke a lot about God's love because that's what I needed. I stopped reading the Bible. That was a boundary for me because everything was triggering. So why am I going to throw myself in the fire, right? Like right. it's supposed to be helpful, not, not, so I needed a break. Yeah. So it was just taking a break from those type of things that kept pushing the fear button so I could heal. And then, then I like, guess what? I'm back to the Bible. Like I'm back to things I can do now um, that I couldn't before. But if we don't let the wound heal, we're, you know, people think, oh, I hear this so much. Like I should be strong enough to tolerate that. Uh-uh. Right. Like, no, right. no, no, no. It's not strength. It's living, it's trauma looping in your nervous system. Like that's, that's has zero to do with strength. It's just simply physiological stuff. We got to heal emotional stuff. Yeah. It's actually a lot like an actual wound, right? Our skin is our greatest protector between, between, you know, our internal organs and, and our, and the rest of the world. And when we have a wound, if we have a, you know, large wound, whatever, we don't expect that open wound to be strong enough to handle xyz right we we know that it's in a weakened state it needs to heal at which point the scar tissue will be strong enough to handle xyz right so if we think about it in terms of you know our you know our physical being our our skin and how we affect how we treat wounds we actually treat wounds with with as as delicate and and things that need time to heal and they need you know different environments and maybe even different salves or medication you know whatever it is we we actually give them a lot of attention and then when they heal we go back to being able to withstand Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's exactly like that yeah um, and I think we're getting there as a society you know where we are giving more credence to emotional um, health and trauma to as we do physical, just because we can't see it, but we're learning to validate that pain, which I think is just beautiful, which is a lot of what we need is that validation of you're not crazy. What you went through really was that bad. Yeah, (laughs) Um, right. It really did hurt like that. And your feelings matter. You know, it's, it's, yes, someone may have had it worse, but you're drowning and so are they. Does it matter how deep the water is you're drowning? (laughs) No, it doesn't. You're drowning. No, you're both drowning. Yep, that's so true. You wrote this book 
with nine steps for eating disorder recovery. What what are the nine steps? How did you come up or how did you come up with the nine steps? Sure. I came up with the nine steps and I mean no harm to the to the 12 step or <laughs> and I really do not want to step on toes, but I just knew in my early recovery it didn't work for me because I You're mean, a three-step hater. I th- what's that mean? <laughs> I don't have <laughs> No, that. I'm saying the three steps you left the, the left off instead of the instead of the twelve, the nine. I'm I'm just I'm oh, totally sure, cheating. sure, yeah. sure. Oh, that's <laughs> funny. I got it now. Oh, it takes me a bit. Um, yeah. Yeah. So well, I mean, my upbringing was so strict. My church was so strict. And now you're going to put me on 12 steps I have to do. I was like, everything in me was like, no, 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 no more. No more have tos. But what about nine steps? How is nine steps different? Good question. Yeah. So it wasn't that I was eliminating steps. I was trying to make it more specific to the eating disorder. So I wanted the language to sound... Because I do believe it's a little different, right? A substance addiction versus an eating disorder is a little different. So I wanted to take the concepts that I think are extremely valuable in 12-step, but make them pertinent to the eating disorder. And what I say, the eating disorder has a voice. It's a different entity and it speaks. And I wanted to incorporate that in some of the demons that go along with it. And so that's why I did. I just felt led to do it. So I did. Yeah. I came up with the the nine steps again that just spoke directly to it. Yeah. And in the, in the steps, if you could describe the steps to someone, would they be, are they process oriented in terms of like, do this, write these three things, you know, pray about like, or are they think about this and think about that or, or yeah. kind of... It's a combination of like, you know, some CBT cognitive behavioral stuff um, as far as thinking and then doing. But there's also, uh, I incorporate processing in there as well, like the early core beliefs that I kind of mentioned of XYZ happened, I made this decision and now I'm living out of this decision. It's, you know, taking the emotional needs, you know, control and independence, esteem, um, those safety, those different needs, and how does the the disorder function to meet those needs? Uh, And then it kind of, yeah, so there's some processing as well, because I feel like you, forgive me for this, you know, black and white statement, I personally don't believe a person can fully recover just doing CBD. I don't, because Um, What I've seen is people come into my office saying, I went through a CBD program and I relapsed. CBT, yes. Yes. Sorry. Okay. Okay. It's okay. And so it's just a band-aid to the behavior. And so we I did put processing in there on purpose so that people do go to early wounds and work on those to heal um, like what set it up. Yeah with inner child work as well, doing some of that like interpretations of um, this is what the voice says and therefore what's the need in that and what can I do different? And it's just a, a grand mix of all of that. I love it. I love it. Where can people find your your book and and your nine steps and more about the stuff that you're doing to offer help with eating disorder recovery? 
Sure. Um, it, the website would probably be the best. Uh, it, www.9, the number, and then shed.com. So nineshed.com. Ironic how nine keeps coming up, isn't it? I just am noticing <laughs> yeah. that. I'm like, hey. <laughs> um, yeah, nine is the number of power. That is another reason why I picked nine because I'm like, it has many meanings, that number. Yeah. So on the website, nineshed.com, um, there's information there about counseling, about groups, both yeah, and uh, as well as the books and different resources um, there as well. You offer um, group therapy weekly. Is that, did I get that right? Uh, yes. Uh-huh. Awesome. So that's all, it's all on the website. It's, yeah, it's all on the website. Yeah. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Rachel, thank you so much for being here and sharing your recovery story. I sure. really, really appreciate it. And, um, and I felt like related to a lot and also learned a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it it truly is just an honor. And I mean that from the depths of my heart. You know, this is a work that I feel like I was called to do in treatment. Like I literally heard God's voice saying that you're going to do that one day. And um, so at 14, I grabbed onto it and it literally like, makes my heart sing. Like I do not do this. Um, I do this out of love, like purely out of love. Cause I just want people well. I really just, yeah. I want people to have burdens lifted. That's, that's, and people healed because, you know, it's so, life is so much better when we're not carrying a lug of, of stuff around our necks. Right. Absolutely. And, and, and life is uh, for me really um, an amazing experience when I can use the things that I experience that in the moments of the pain and the depths of those pain, I'm going, why me? Why, why what have I done in my past, present, or future lives to deserve, you know, this, this pain? And, and I think to myself, I'll never, you know, you know, this is pointless, meaningless. And then it is the thing that moves someone's, you know, recovery one direction or another. And, and you just, you just look back and, and now when I'm go through really painful things, or when I watch, you know, my husband or children, I think this is, this is the thing that's going to help someone later down the line you know, go through that same thing. I have a very different perspective on it, but helping people is, is really a beautiful part of what we, what we've been able to do. And I I totally get it. What, you know, makes your heart sing. And it's just a, it's just such a cool experience. Yeah. I, I back that up a hundred percent. Yes. There's different um, health challenges that I went through experiencing cancer and such. And Trust me, there was a lot of processing before I got to this can help others. Um, <laughs> totally. I wasn't like, oh, this is wonderful. I can now help people yeah. with this. Yeah, exactly. It, lots exactly. and lots of grieving. And then, God, how are you going to use this too? So yeah, I echo that. And I, I love other hearts that are bent toward recovery and loving on people. It's They're, they're my people. They're my beautiful people that I love. <laughs> so. I love it too. Well, I'm grateful for you and the work that you do. And I really, really appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you. And you as well, like continued blessings on, on your podcast and your work. So thank you. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a recovery community offering free online support group meetings, useful recovery information and entertainment. Visit www.lionrock.life to view the meeting schedule and find additional resources. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.